would turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. In just a moment, Pastor Kent Hobie is going to be preaching the word, but this is a longer passage, and it would do us well to read it. There's 42 verses of the story of a sister in Christ that, if you are in Christ, you will one day meet. John chapter 4. Follow along, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 42. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, Samaria called Sychar near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour, or noon. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or, why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come and see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, 
I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields they are, that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I've done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. All right, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of the Bible. Uh, it truly is um, the most precious gift that we have. It's taught us inerrantly and infallibly about our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Uh, we look forward one day to being with you, Jesus, where we can hear from you directly. But you certainly have more than adequately provided for us. You've given us your spirit. Uh, you've given us your word. You've given us a new nature. And uh, we thank you so much for uh, the abundance. We worship you. Thank you for the ministry of music this morning. How powerful. Lord, it's powerful because we know of whom we have heard these things. We know their lives. We know that the testimony of these songs are personal and therefore very powerful. And we thank you that all of us in the church age have the joy of that kind of spiritual productivity moving out of uh, chaos into clarity, uh, being able to deal with calamity and difficulty and seeing it turned around in our lives as moments of uh, becoming more like Jesus, uh, more intimately in fellowship with him. For all these things, we're grateful. We pray now as we turn our attention to the, your word in John 4, that you'd help us to do the necessary work. Lord, we what we know uh, to be true of worship uh, never bypasses our intellect. So we have to work hard, Lord. We, we're a little tired, perhaps. We're a little, uh, a little uh, distracted. We pray, Father, that you would help us to focus and help us to do the work that, that we have in worship to do here now. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. proposition is a simple one this morning. Jesus' atonement, accomplished and applied, dramatically changes life for a coming new faith community. That's from Jesus' perspective. That coming new faith community is the church. It's the age in which we live. 
Old Testament narrative and gospel narrative, as we have before us this morning, as the product of inspiration, reveals historic accounts inerrantly and infallibly. In these accounts, God is always the hero. In our case here in the gospel, Jesus is the heroic Godhead representative. And what he does in John chapter 4 is beyond heroic. In these accounts, there are good guys and bad guys and people who really accentuate the goodness of the good guys or the badness of the bad guys. These key characters often undergo dramatic development. Some decline in their love for God and his word, sadly. Uh, Some simply miss uh, the significance of what is going on. And others show great transformation, growing in their love for God and his word. And as 1 Corinthians 10 reminds us, these things are given to us, these accounts, as examples. As examples. So we don't want to miss the example this morning. In the Gospels, we have all of this, but we also have something happening on a much grander scale. Jesus is ushering in the last days, the church age. For the first time, a faith community will live under an atonement accomplished and applied. Heretofore, faith communities lived under the promise and the expectation of the fulfillment of an atonement. What Jesus announces here makes all the difference in the world. A simple illustration, there's a great difference between, and particularly in this day and age, between the promise of a contractor coming to fix your mess and the contractor having come and fixed it. There's a great difference. John 4 is a mountaintop chapter, and I can't understate what's going on here when it comes to these sweeping changes for the coming new faith community, the church. In this chapter, Jesus announces some colossal changes with respect to, let's call it, salvation history. It is critical in these accounts that we observe the dialogue. So with that in mind, let's focus our attention on Jesus' interaction, first of all, with the Pharisees. The Pharisees, there's not necessarily a verbal interaction, but there is interaction. It seems like to the Pharisees in our passage, Jesus is simply saying, well, I'll deal with you later. I'll deal with you later. We're not sure why necessarily Jesus Here's what the Pharisees are doing, counting who's, who's baptizing who and why that was a particular concern. We don't have that particularly in this chapter, but I think we can make a guess. And we certainly know that Jesus knew what the Pharisees were up to. According to Bible Gateway, a simple search of Pharisees tells us that Pharisees as a group is used 19 times in the book of John. In many of these passages, the Pharisees are trying to avert the attention of the crowd and those who are under the influence of Jesus and trying to remove that influence from their midst. 
However, John also proclaims these truths. In John chapter 10, verse 15, 17, and 37, he says, I lay down my life. I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. And then speaking directly to Peter, he says, I will lay down my life for you. And even more clearly in John chapter 10, no one, no one, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This command I have received from my Father. Jesus knew what the Pharisees were up to. Jesus would eventually use the aggression of the Pharisees when he was good and well ready to. There is no more powerful illustration of absolute control, mastery, and authority over a situation than when an individual uses the energy of his aggressor to accomplish his purpose. This is the stuff that legends are made of. Sun Tzu if you're familiar with him, calls it the art of war. The martial art Aikido is a discipline dedicated to teaching how to take the energy of an aggressor's attack and redirect it against him. Can I say this this morning? That we have been benefiting for a millennia, millennia, at least two, perhaps three, from the Pharisees' aggression against our Lord and Savior when he allowed them to allow that aggression to come to its full flower. We've been the beneficiary. So instead of dealing with the Pharisees, Jesus had a critical appointment to keep. And that critical appointment is really with the Samaritans in general. We'll see that here. And essentially, what he's saying to the Samaritans in general, as examples of perhaps the Gentile world to come in the church age, you need to see Jesus as Savior of the world. You need to see Jesus as the Savior of the world. Jesus' approach into the world of the Samaritans and into the world of the Gentile community at large, uh, ironically enough, begins with a woman at a well. Jesus had formerly in John 3 dealt with, the, with Nicodemus, the, the high and lofty religious leader, has a heart for him. And now he comes to the lowly woman at the well, the Samaritan. And Jesus begins to make his case with the Samaritans through the woman at the well, and he simply asks her for a drink. He says, give me a drink. And the woman responds in several different ways, and we're going to take a look at her response as representative of her Samaritan brethren, and beyond that as representative of you and I. She says, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? We read that, this whole point in verses 7 through 10. 
And Jesus, in effect, answers this way. He says, woman, those are non-starters. Those are non-starters. Now you say, well, what's a non-starter? And he really didn't say that, Pastor. Well, he essentially did. A non-starter is a plan or an idea that has no chance of succeeding or being effective. These matters that the woman at the well, with respect to Jesus' concern for her soul, the soul of the Samaritans, and I would argue by extension, the soul of the Gentile community, these are non-starters. The woman pulls the racism and the sexism card. John, in fact, affirms that this, wasn't, this was not outside the pale of reality. Racism and sexism do, in fact, exist. And he says that little parentheses can, in fact, exist with religious protection, sadly. However, for Jesus, these are non-starters. Jesus leverages his shared humanity for the sake of the woman's eternal destiny. He does so by sharing his the fact in his humanity he's tired, he's thirsty. These are the very occasion for the dialogue with this woman. I would argue that this is a microcosm of exactly what Jesus has done for all of us. He has leveraged his shared humanity, his ability to die in his human flesh for the sins of the world. And he does so to become our faithful high priest. What we observe at this point in the woman's thinking and in the dialogue is her cultural patriotism exacerbated by her religious rivals, the Jews, and the resulting view of her gender all of these cut off her ability to know, to know. Frankly, my friends, this is the classic Gentile response to Jesus. Gender, race, religious rivalry, patriotism, nationalism. Over all of these rivals are non-starters when it comes to receiving the important gift of eternal life from Jesus Christ. For Jesus, there's only two starters from his perspective. And he tells the woman, your problem is, woman, you do not know the gift of God and you do not know who I am. Those are the two issues. Those are always the two issues with respect to the Gentile community. You don't know the gift of God, and you don't know who Jesus is. He mentions that. In response to the woman's inference and all of the non-starters in her heart, Jesus remains steadfast, and he begins to unfold what, in fact, the gift of God is for her and who it is who is speaking to her. He refuses to be derailed. She comes back with a question. You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Verses 11 through 14. 
Jesus answers very simply. In effect, he says, yes, I am. And you know how I know that, or you know how I can proclaim that or declare that? Is by virtue of what I'm offering. I'm offering you drink that will quench forever your spiritual thirst. You know, we agree with the woman at the well. Jacob, the digger of this well, looked down the corridors of time and provided a good, deep well that would provide physically refreshing water for his ancestry. Millennia later, this is an amazing well. We would argue from Jacob's perspective, this is pretty good foresight. Jesus, however, doesn't look down any corridors of time. You want to know why? Because he created the corridors of time. Infinitely and eternally. And provides spiritually living, spiritual living water that quenches the deep spiritual thirst plaguing the soul that's in rebellion against its creator God. My friends, I would argue that that's even better foresight with its eternal implications for this woman. So as he unpacks this eternal gift, looking back at verse 10, we see that this gift is given simply to those who ask. He says to the woman, you would have asked, and I would have given. It's that simple. In verse number 14, we see that the gift has no religious or racial requirement. Jesus says, whoever wants to drink. The gift yields a limitless source of truth. The word drink is a present indicative. It simply means that those who make drinking from Jesus the reality of their life, those people have a limitless source of truth to minister to that hole in their soul. Drink, drink. The gift is limitless in a curative effect. Jesus says, you will never thirst again spiritually. And then this gift transforms the life of those who possess it. In you, Uh, 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 will be a welling up to eternal life. You literally will begin to be able to live from the perspective of the reality that exists in all eternity. My friends, the product of that kind of life is a life that flourishes as the God of heaven designed it to flourish. Eternal life. You know, at this point in the dialogue, Jesus pivots to clarify now his identity. He's dealt with the gift of God. Now he's going to deal with his identity. He lovingly shows that his identity necessitates an authority, an authority to call her to repentance, to meet her greatest need. The woman's response to this amazing gift as Jesus unpacks his own identity was, Sir, 
Give me this water. Jesus' answer? No. Not until you understand who I am. You're not going to have it, and you cannot have it, until you deal with me, who I am, and my authority. Here Jesus stunningly demonstrates an incommunicable attribute of God. No man had ever done this. No man after Jesus ever will. He, in fact, is the unique divine God. The God of heaven come in human flesh. He directs his omniscience in a very interesting place. He doesn't tell, hey, I, you know, I look down, you know, you are going to be successful one day and all your worries are going to be, you know, he doesn't sort of lay this prophetic word about how wonderful your life's going to be. No, no. That just makes people twice the children of hell. Jesus focuses his omniscience. He directs it to a particular area of this woman's life. He directs it to what he knew about her life with respect to what she knew was true about the Mosaic Law. The fact that she did not have, a single, uh, she had no husband, she in fact had five husbands. She knew well that this was contrary to the moral law of God. She was an offender. But what's interesting is Jesus artfully uses the law's intended purpose. What does Paul tell us the intended purpose of the law is? The intended purpose of the law takes sin out of the sort of the unidentified impersonal realm and puts it right in the identified personal realm as an offense against the holy God of Israel, the holy God of the Bible. And it identifies, it's a tutor that teaches us that we can't measure up, that we need help from another source. And Jesus is standing there and saying, I'm your source. I'm your source of the righteousness that you're going to need. I'm the source of the forgiveness that you're going to need. He artfully uses the law's intended purpose. So from her perspective, his omniscience at least put him in the classification of a prophet and possibly the Messiah. She's still not quite on board with what Jesus is trying to do. So she says to Jesus, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. And Jesus gives three critical answers to this in our account here. His first answer is, Woman at the well, you are uninformed. Essentially, he's kindly saying you're ignorant. You're ignorant. God's revelation to man is found, in fact, in the Jewish canon. You say, well, pastor, why is that significant? Well, she brings up a contention, and that contention is where the Jews worship. That's a problem for her. Well, why is this a problem for her? Well, as Samaritans, uh, she knew that uh, uh, as a rival religion to the Jews, the Samaritans did not accept any of the books of the Old Testament except the Pentateuch. All they did was accept the first five of the books of the Bible. Therefore, David, Jerusalem, 
the authorization that God gave to Solomon to build the temple in Jerusalem, all of that was not Bible for her. She was a revelatory half-breed. You know what? That's another thing Gentiles are really good at. We're really good at being revelatory half-breeds. You know, we, we love to take truth from a lot of different places and sort of diminish perhaps the truth that's found in the Bible, although we kind of like parts of it. And As a, as a Gentile group, really don't love the authority of revelation we'd rather pick and choose just like our Samaritan forefathers did um, from the Pentateuch the, 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 good, the, the Samaritan would see uh, that Shechem overlooked uh, was, was overlooked by Mount Gerizim uh, this was the place Abraham built an altar once he entered the promised land it was from Mount Gerizim that the blessings were to be shouted to the covenant community back and forth. Once they had entered the promised land, this is all recounted in Deuteronomy. So they had some standing on why this particular location was critically important and why they should worship there rather than in Jerusalem. So she brings up this theological issue. Jesus' second answer to this reality is, believe me. Believe me. Now, this is not believe me in a salvific sense. This is not believe me as your savior. That, that's going to come. This believe me is, is, a, is a command for this woman to understand that he is a very special Individual who is revealing the very will of God. He is God himself. He is not saying, believe the prophets. Believe the historic books. Believe the wisdom books. No, he's saying, look, he transcends all of that. And he says, I reveal God's will and way myself. Believe me as a new source of revelation. And friends, from this point forward, salvation history will never be the same. Jesus essentially is saying, my divinity, authority, and my coming atonement will unilaterally change worship forever. Forever. Christ's atonement, accomplished and applied, completely reorganizes worship. We no longer require the Shekinah glory of God to have a street address in a singular building or sanctuary. Jesus' accomplished atonement, his applied atonement, completely renders that obsolete. Jesus himself comes in human flesh forever to forever be identified as a human being. Jesus' atonement accomplished and applied made possible human bodies now to be the dwelling place of the glory of God. Romans 12, 1 and 2. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. This now is the place on earth where the dwelling glory, the Shekinah glory of God 
now resides. Before Jesus came or comes, the atonement was a promise. A promise. It was a good promise. It was a reliable promise for sure, but it was a promise. Worship among those people celebrated the temporary appeasement of God's wrath for sin. God's wrath was still there. It hung over all the religious practices. And we know that because all of the religious practices required some kind of an offering, and the majority of them required blood offerings. It was always there. You would come back from worship with blood-stained clothes. God's wrath hung over like a specter in those worship practices after Jesus comes. The atonement now, not a mere promise, is accomplished and applied. The wrath of God, right? That's what's at issue. The wrath of, your, of God for your sin is now once and for all time dealt with. It has been satisfied. It's satisfied. God's wrath no longer hangs over our worship forms. Instead, God's wrath and the worship of the church saint is memorialized. Very important, we memorialize it once a month here at Grace Church of Menor. We proclaim the what of Jesus till he comes. And we remember why? Because God's wrath hung over my head. But Jesus died in my place. Yes, more amens would be nice. <laughs> Church, you live on the other side of atonement, accomplished and applied. You no longer fear the wrath of God if you're born again. No longer. It doesn't hang like a specter in your life. And if it does, it ought not to. It ought not to. According to John chapter 4, it ought not to. Jesus' third answer is I am the Messiah, and I declare all things to this theological controversy, this point the woman brings up. He essentially is saying, I'm the greatest revelatory vehicle in all of salvation history. I am a one-for-one. One. Heretofore, God spoke through a human being and gave us inspired scriptures to be interpreted and understood. Jesus is one-for-one one vehicle of what God's desires are. In effect, he's saying, I am God. Staying with the Samaritans, we're going to skip down to verse 39. This woman, overwhelmed by this, we have this amazing reality that, that God desires worshipers uh, and, the, and, and a kind of worshiper that will worship in spirit and in truth. If worshipers are going to worship in spirit and in truth, the dwelling glory of God must descend upon them, in them personally. Not every pe person who, who approached the worship form in the nation of Israel had the possibility of the dwelling glory of God being in their heart and life. They were not all born again. In fact, I would argue very few of them were. But they still had this form that they could participate in. Not, not in the church. Not in the church. You cannot 
even be thought of being a worshiper unless the dwelling glory of God is in you and you testify to that. And then we receive you into membership. And then you worship the Lord. This is amazing. This is amazing. So this whole... Uh, uh, unpacking of, of what's going on in this new church age, in the age, not the new church age, but the, the new age, the church. With this, this atonement accomplished and applied. He, this woman is, is amazed, and, and, and in verse uh, 39, she, she, she goes to the city and she tells the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? The men come. They're impacted by this, this powerful revelator of who and what God is. One who doesn't appeal to, the, to, the, to the, the law or the prophets, but he commands on his own authority. And they beg him to stay with him. Jesus' answer? Okay. I'll stay with you for a couple of days. I'll stay with you. My friends, this has been the longing of the church ever since. Jesus, two days would be nice. We don't have our Jesus right now. It's embodied in Paul's longing in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Why, dearly beloved? Because we're in the presence of our wonderful Jesus. It is the first and most glorious implication of our blessed hope as the church. What's our blessed hope? Bodily resurrection from the dead. That's our blessed hope, if you didn't know. That's our engine. first implication is given to us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 17 and 18 then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and what so shall we ever be with the Lord spending days with Jesus, our Samaritan forefathers. He proclaimed to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for what? Ourselves. And each of us as individuals know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. We revelatory, messed up people as representatives of the whole world, all of you messed up Gentiles, all of this messed up Gentile, he's my Savior. He's my Savior of the whole world. The whole world. 
this becomes an abstract. You know what an abstract is? Uh, where's Tony? Tony, I think, is in here somewhere. Maybe he left. I don't know. Is he here? Maybe not. Anyway, Tony's writing a paper for a, an advanced degree in theology. And uh, before you do that, you write what's called an abstract. It's sort of a summary, right, of, of the content of that paper. And you submit that, and the people who are going to either pass or fail you say this is a good idea or a bad idea. And you really do whatever they say at that point, because you want to pass. Uh, but that's what an abstract is. It's a summary. It's a summary. This is an abstract for life in the atonement accomplished and applied era of salvation history. It's individual. We already mentioned that. It's objective. It's words from a self-attesting revelatory source from God so that we can articulate the truth we know. We know. They know the gift. You know the gift. They know the giver. You know the giver. And they believe. They believe Jesus. And they drink now of the eternal life-giving water that Jesus is constantly sourced from the word of God. No more non-starters. No more. Not for these Samaritans. Jesus is Savior of the whole world. No more concerns about gender or status. No more concerns about religious rivals. No more concerns about patriotism. None of these impact eternal life. None. So they need to be reduced to their proper place and dealt with in light of eternal life. Eternal life. So as characters, the Pharisees are preparing for a moral descent. The Samaritans are examples of, a, of all revelatory mixed people groups. We would call them the Gentiles. And they're rescued from their deplorable spiritual condition. All who believe Jesus, that he is Savior of the world, would receive the gift of God, eternal life. So all who are remain in our passage are the disciples. They appear to miss the larger significance, uh, as we disciples of Jesus often do. And quickly, essentially Jesus is saying to the disciples in our passage, you have much to learn concerning ministry. The disciples walk onto the scene amazed, uh, but sadly no one asks about why Jesus is speaking to the Good Samaritan woman or, or what he's saying. Uh, they just sort of leave it go unsaid. Uh, I mean, Jesus had just changed the whole landscape of worship. <laughs> and they just kind of missed it, <laughs> you know? And um, so what's Jesus? Uh, and so what do they say to Jesus? Rabbi! Eat. Yes. If I were the rabbi, that's what I'd want you to say to me. And I would say, okay, let's eat. Uh, but Jesus is far better rabbi. Jesus' answer is this, essentially, to these, these disciples. He says, the possibility, and this is so profound, y'all. The possibility of spiritual productivity in individual lives in this era of salvation history, in the era of an atonement accomplished and applied, is comparable by analogy to the amazing physical blessings of the millennial kingdom mentioned in Amos 9, 
verse 13 and following. The atonement accomplished in applied era has the possibility of being so much more effective in spiritual productivity compared to the spiritual productivity of the previous eras of salvation history. If you're familiar with Amos 9, it essentially is quoted here. In the millennium, the sower is going to overcome the reaper. And the idea there is there's just going to be physical bounty that is absolutely stunning and heretofore unknown. What Jesus is saying is in our era, we have the possibility of that same kind of spiritual productivity. It's stunning. And that's, in fact, what is represented in this church. We have men and women who are being transformed in their character in the, to the image of God. They are drinking, drinking, drinking from Jesus. They're not allowing non-starters to cloud their life, and they're making progress. And we're out in our community, and we're giving the gospel, and we're seeing people come to know Jesus Christ. You know, the nation of Israel, they had to go out and kill Philistines. We get to go out as Philistines and be one. <laughs> Aren't you glad? I mean, I like that productivity. So in conclusion, John 20, 31 is clear. John writes that humanity must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, if they are to possess eternal life. It stands to reason then that Jesus, not self, must be the central project of your life. Mental health is not Jesus' primary concern for you. His primary concern is that you know the gift of God, maybe that's mental health, and that you know clearly the identity of Jesus the Messiah, the God-man. That needs to be the central project of our lives. Eternal life is hanging in the balance for you, dear friend. The Pharisees rejected him. Jesus left them alone for a bit. Later, he would use their aggression against them and die for the sins of the world and make all of the Gentile nations beneficiaries of that aggression. The Samaritans embodied by the woman at the well needed to be set free from her erroneous doctrinal commitment. This commitment fueled by her her patriotism and excited by Jewish hatred for who they were would make them twice the children of hell. She needed to see Jesus as Messiah, yes, but also the Savior of the world. Never forget that for Jesus, race, gender, and patriotism, and, and anything else are non-starters when it comes to your eternal destiny. He gathers a people from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. He's Savior of the world. He has worldwide interests, and so should we when it comes to evangelism and transformation and calling people to drink, to drink, gender. You know, this kind of cuts both ways, doesn't it? On the one hand, no one's left out. Hey, yay! On the other hand, everyone must obey. No one stands in the Gentile courtyard anymore and says, whew, I'm glad I don't have to go in there and face God. No, everyone faces God. Everyone will be held account. Oh, that double-edged sword. Praise God and, ooh, okay. 
never forget, dear church saint, Jesus' atonement accomplished and applied makes the wrath of God an important memory, not present reality. Huge difference there. Finally, dear disciples of Jesus, never forget that the possibility, dear church, of productivity, spiritual productivity, for our disciple-making work is analogically comparable to the amazing physical fruitfulness of the millennial kingdom. In that day, sowing and reaping of food crops will be going on simultaneously. Sower and reaper will rejoice together for the first time ever. That has never happened in any previous era of farming history. <laughs> never has happened before. In our day, people who sow gospel seeds and those who reap them overtake each other. Spiritual sower and spiritual reaper rejoice together with no time delays. The possibility of spiritual productivity in your own life and in the life of our unsaved friends is unprecedented. Unprecedented. Church, do you believe that? You need to believe that. We're not a woe-is-me faith organization. Oh, gosh. I'm sort of this... No! We are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. We are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Amen. We're future rulers of the world. Wake up! Wake up! Eternal life is yours for the taking. If you want it. If you want it. It's there. You can be so productive. We must look up, see the fields, the potential. We live in an era of atonement accomplished and applied. What great grace. What great joy. Be encouraged, dear church. Be encouraged. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this amazing passage. Lord, we haven't done it justice there is so much more here. Jesus, you are, to call you incredible, heroic, divine, a one-for-one -one revelatory agent. It's just the beginning. You are head of the body. You are the cornerstone of the building. Uh, you are our Lord and our Savior. And we thank you for that. And you're coming again. Lord, forgive us for forgetting where we stand, what our identity is. I pray that we would reach and strain for that spiritual productivity in our own lives, be conformed into the image of Christ, to change, to, to make progress, and then to challenge our friends and neighbors with, with the authority of Jesus Christ in their life, to call them to drink, to drink, because Jesus gives eternal life, eternal life. So Lord, once again, re restart that engine in our lives if we've sort of faltered. And we thank you that our worship, even this morning as we heard all these amazing truths, God is not up on the mountain with clouds and thunders and lightnings. No, we sang of the God of heaven who is our Father, who, who is the caretaker of our dreams. We, we, we have this loving relationship. This is amazing, and we're so thankful. And the Lord, encourage us, we pray in Jesus' name.